0: I'm Margaret Brennan, and welcome to Facing Forward. This week, are Zoom meetings forever? Has the pandemic permanently changed Americans' relationship with technology? One way to think about this is that this period has brought forth 10 years of forward change. The COVID recession hit like a tsunami, rendering entire parts of the economy obsolete. What comes next?
1: people are going to be more motivated than ever to spend time with other humans, how they use that time and and with whom they spend it. That is where the technology comes in.
0: The pandemic tore open existing social divides on race, income, and gender. We ask whether it will force employers and the U.S. government to provide more guarantees to America's workforce. Ahead, a conversation with venture capitalist Alexis Ohanian of 776. He co-founded Reddit and now has an eye on the future. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a quick break.
1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
0: You know, I think you're our um, third UVA alum on the pod and we're like a new pod. Sounds like
1: a little bit of bias. (laughs) We got Wahoos doing big things.
0: I was thinking about the very first time I met you was at a University of Virginia event for alums, back in New York. Mm-hmm. And it Way was, back. yeah. And it was at this swanky, like very buttoned up midtown Manhattan club. And you sauntered mm-hmm. in wearing headphones and a hoodie.
1: That's about sounds about right. <laughs> Which awesome. is
0: like standard tech uniform, but was <laughs> like, what, what's going to happen on this panel? Uh, we were yeah. supposed we talking about the future of media and then you rocked it and you took us in the social direction. And you talked about changing information flows. And that's what fascinated me um, in your thinking. And then we started regularly talking about tech investing Mm -hmm. at that time. I wanted to start with you today on that sort of big picture thinking on trends, because you're good at this stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think given the year we've spent now in this pandemic, bizarro land, that you know, Zoom meetings die by next year or have we permanently changed our relationship with technology?
1: The way I think about it, Zoom meetings definitely don't go away. And and the way I've been describing it to folks is the pandemic accelerated tech adoption. What would have taken five years happened in five months. And and that's why you're seeing the numbers you're seeing out of tech companies. and And that's not just large valuations that's huge gains in revenue um we've had companies just you know really really benefit frankly from the fact that a a whole lot of new people millions of new people learned for the first time uh, at no cost to the companies about their services and about what they offered and connecting us at work remotely is something that has been, it was kind of a niche thing for a while. There were examples of billion dollar businesses that were formed entirely remote, um, but now it's really, really shifted everyone's perception about what the office looks like. But the tools that we're using right now, the Zooms and, and others, think of those as like bronze age tools. These are still really, really basic ways to do work in a distributed world. and. The good news is now that so many people's attention and livelihood is focused on it, those tools are going to get much better, much faster. And, and we're going to start to see way better ways to, to do this kind of collaboration. And so Zoom fatigue is real. Uh, and, and it's a byproduct of the fact that we all got forced to do really high level work with, like I said, Bronze Age technology. And, and that's going to catch up though. Um, and so I definitely think that the trend of at least flexible work is, is very much here to stay.
0: Do you think that there will be kind of a backlash though, like that there's? I mean, I was looking at some of the companies that you are investing in right now, and this, um, dispo, is it the mm-hmm. disposable camera? Yes. It looks like, it sounds to me like it's kind of like technology nostalgia for the '90s. This like delayed gratification, mm-hmm. where you you take a photo on an app, but then you wait until the next day to see what it looks like
1: yeah it's, it's 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 anachronistic to think about this being the hottest trend in gen z right now um and it's funny because right that, that generation has no idea what it means to take a photo and have to wait to get it developed and yet you know we we, we don't feel you know we don't miss it that much because it was kind of a pain um but the delayed gratification part yeah that's that's actually a novel phenomenon for gen z and, and, and the reason Dispo has had the success it's had out the gate is because it's part of a bigger trend, a, a reaction to the first wave of social media. Um, you know, Instagram created a culture where people spend as much time or more time on their phones at events, taking photos, editing photos, perfecting photos than actually living in the moment. Mm-hmm. And and I think we've seen the negative effects of that. And I'm I'm grateful to be on the ground floor as an investor in a company that's thinking really deliberately about how to build a healthier social network, how to build a place where yeah you can share photos with your friends. God bless, take photos, have fun. Um, but you're spending time with those people you care about and not living in your phone during those times. And that is the start of a much bigger trend. I think consumer social is is clearly back, and more importantly. All of the people building it grew up for the last 15 years using the things that I and my generation built, and yeah, we got a lot of things right. We also got a lot of things wrong, mm-hmm. and and they're now building way more intentionally because they've seen the good and the bad and the ugly of the first wave of social. And the second wave is going to absolutely be a healthier, more positive one uh, because the CEOs want it, because the CEOs, the founders demand it, and um, and frankly, I think the, the user base does too.
0: So you and your friends in your dorm room at UVA were far Hancock. more productive. You were first in Hancock?
1: Left. Yeah. Hancock first left. <laughs> Everyone who new did go to UVA is like, what? No, no, it was old dorms. Come That's on. old,
0: old dorms? Oh, old I was dorms. in new dorm. I went for the AC oh. man. I don't know how you oh. lived in old dorm. But <laughs> well, you were far more productive in your dorm room than I was because you and your friends found it, read it while you were undergrads. Um mm-hmm we know fast forward to today you 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 have resigned from that board but mm-hmm. you are thinking about social media um and i, I want to pick up on this idea you're talking about of being intentional
1: mm-hmm. like, what do you
0: think that means what what do you think of reddit's legacy I, I, in this space
1: yeah the, look this is the reality of every one of those first generation social media platforms was and our stories we're all fairly similar right and we all we all look the same too but our stories were were very similar in that none of us genuinely knew the scale and impact to which these platforms would have and and so we weren't building intentionally we were just building to you know make our parents proud or or build something that we enjoyed working on every day at least those were my motivations and and have have a career where we could dictate our own you know be our own boss and and that was the goal that was it and everything else was just gravy and what has happened is you know 15 years later these platforms have such a huge impact on our world on on elections on society on discourse on on everything and a lot of unintended consequences and Mm -hmm. so last year was a formative year for for a a lot of us uh, myself included and it gave me a time to really reflect on what i wanted that legacy of mine to be for for my daughter um frankly that's that's it's easy i know you've like team team parent over here like it's such a crystallizing thing to um to, to then look at everything you've done and feel so proud for so many years and realize none of it really mattered because this little being is now everything. I Mm -hmm. want to make sure that the work that I'm doing is having a a very positive impact and something that, you know, my daughter is super proud of. She's going to have, she's going to have lots of people her entire life telling her how amazing her mom is. And that's, that's great, rightly so. And, and what an impact she's had. And I'm, I'm a very competitive person who wants, I, I want her to hear lots of amazing stories about the work that her dad has done and how her dad made his money and, and, and for her to be proud of all those things and to say, you know what? He's, he's put in the work to make this world a little better for me and lots of people like me. Um, and, uh, and that was it. I mean, that, I think I'm in many ways riding on a much bigger wave now Because this next generation of CEO is just so much smarter, so much savvier, and and so much more aware of the implications of what they're building.
0: You know, I have a I have a two and a half year old son. I think your daughter's a little Mm -hmm. older than that. FaceTime, you know, we rely on that right now Mm -hmm. to talk to grandparents and all that. But then I think about his interaction with technology. I mean, has do you let Olympia use iPads? I mean, do have you thought yet about what what your child's relationship with technology is going to be like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And not surprisingly, if you talk to a lot of tech execs, especially those of us who have built product, especially consumer product, we're all very reluctant to get our kids on there because we know <laughs> these tools are developed to, to really prey upon human weakness. And I know I that that sounds very, Ouch. Sinister. yeah. Hey, no, that, that sounds very sinister, but I let me reframe that. It's the reality though is, right? Every push notification you're getting is is triggering a little dopamine hit to to get you to want to come back. And and that in and of itself is not a bad thing. Um what is so important though for an, a a child's brain is and and the reason why we're really really specific about you know ipad or or iphone usage is because i don't want to put her baby brain under that or in i don't want to expose her baby brain to those conditions this early while it's still developing i have i I think as adults it's a very different discussion um because adults make adult consequences or brain or make adult decisions our brains are fully formed etc but when you start using those triggers on the brain of a kid uh, that's where I, I don't want it. I don't want those two to ever meet um, simply because that kind of, I don't know, those, those, those kinds of tools um, that drive engagement and drive, you know, taps. Um, I don't want, I don't want messing with my kid's head. I know at times in our household, my kid was, or my television was my sort of babysitter. Cause my, my parents are busy working and, and dealing with stuff. But in hindsight, like, that lean back experience, um, assuming the programming is age appropriate, not so bad. And, and I'm definitely guilty of being like, okay, great. We can like, uh, Olympia, let's put on, um, Paw Patrol or bubble guppies. And, and the nice thing is because I know what that program is about. If I pass out for 20 minutes, I'm it's fine. Whereas, and this is why, you know, we had, we, we had YouTube on, uh, the, the family iPad for a little bit and I, I recently took it off because mm-hmm. I was just like, I just can't, is because, you know, that recommendation engine, that's right. That's designed for adult brains. That's designed to keep feeding us sort of more of exactly what we need. And, and, and you don't know where that rabbit hole goes.
0: Do you think yeah. then that like CEOs of tech companies should be held accountable for how their platforms are used? I mean, you, you see this in Washington gaining momentum mm-hmm. uh, across the aisle, you know, Republicans yeah. complain about censorship. On the left, you hear these complaints about the tech companies becoming too big and needing to break them up. Like, what level of accountability should there be for for CEOs and founders?
1: Well, I think something is inevitable at this point because you're right. You're seeing Republicans and Democrats agreeing on something, which these days is pretty rare. Um, I do think so. As as it extends to Section Two Hundred and Thirty, I think. Section 230 is a very, very, very important part of the internet, and and I would not advocate seeing that get destroyed. Um, I do think when we're talking about accountability and responsibility, at least when it comes to children, you have a really straightforward, I think, a, a, a pretty much straightforward alignment. I think every CEO, or there there aren't many CEOs who I think can, can forever shake that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Because uh, because we're talking about children here, and and at the end of the day, this is this is a platform that is not just distracting our kids, but educating our kids and informing our kids about the world, and there are real consequences to that, and and there are both there there are good ones and and there are bad ones, and I think we've now we've far we've gone far beyond the period of like oh shucks we don't know or just this little startup um the role that technology companies are playing in our society is getting it's bigger and bigger every day and uh and so i think it's it's absolutely inevitable and i do think this is a part of the conversation that's been put off for for too long and and certainly when it comes to user safety is is really 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 important
0: mhm um and 230 is about basically protecting websites from from third party postings right like you you can't be held liable Mm -hmm. for somebody else posting on that platform
1: it is that is the act that makes all of the internet work or or the the vast majority of the internet any any site that has user generated content even a even the comment section of your favorite sports website or sports blog like requires it and um and so i think there's absolutely look there's Everyone talks about the scalpel versus the sledgehammer. Um, definitely not a sledgehammer situation. Um, but I do think there are ways to, to build in more things that help, help do what I, I think most of these CEOs want, which is keep users safe and keep the platform open uh, mm-hmm. but while still preserving the ability for people to feel like they can you know, find a home there or, or find sort of basic safety there.
0: But you are still investing in, in social networking, right? You're you've got something called real time. I mean, is this just even post-pandemic, we're gonna be living on our phones to a certain extent?
1: I think I think it's similar to the return to work, it's gonna be hybrid. There are gonna be people for whom the connections are never better and never stronger totally digitally, because they're able to find, you know, deep human connections over wonderful things over silly things, um, and actually find deep friendships. Uh, and then they're going to be, they're going to absolutely be apps in real time is a good example designed around making a connection and then, and then actually eventually bringing it to offline and actually giving you an excuse to meet up and, you know, post post pandemic, I'm expecting the next few years to be a huge boom when it comes to, you know, parties, events, gatherings, I, I think. Even just being in Melbourne, which was was COVID free for most of the time that we were there, um, and being able to go out in the city after a 14-day quarantine, but then being able to go out in the city freely, it, you just felt a buzz. People are going to be more motivated than ever to spend time with other humans. How they use that time and, and with whom they spend it, that is where the technology comes in. It does not replace human interaction. It just increases our likelihood of having
0: good experiences. I want to ask you about that because you're talking about travel to Australia mm-hmm. for the Australian Open. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm jealous you were actually on the plane. But I'm going to take a quick break here. <laughs> and we'll be right. right back. So, Alexis, stay with us. Sure. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. So, Alexis, do you play tennis?
1: (laughs) I do not play tennis. I've never played tennis before, never picked up a racket. Really? Really, really.
0: I was looking at I was looking at um, Instagram, and there are these mm. adorable videos of Serena Williams, your wife, with your daughter, who's adorable, holding a tennis racket. Which, mm-hmm. for me, would be incredibly intimidating to pick up a tennis racket in front of Serena Williams. But I, I did wonder that if you ever played.
1: I have never played, and I have no intention of playing. I never even <laughs> followed the sport. I, I didn't I thought it was a boring country club hobby. I did not think it was a real sport, and I was so, 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 so wrong. I'll fully admit it. and and now' I'm, I, I could not be a bigger fan, um, and not just because my wife. I mean, that's a big part of it. but I um, for as someone who played team sports growing up, and and grew up in a very like American football household, and that was you know that was everything. Um, I really slept on tennis for lots of reasons, not the least of which was I didn't appreciate how incredibly demanding it is, not just mm-hmm. physically, which it absolutely is, but mentally. You know, Olympia is getting her tennis lessons, and uh, and I promised that if she started playing, I would at least. I would at least do enough to keep up with her and be able to be a good tennis dad. But, um, but we'll see, I'm trying to get her into football or soccer. Um, <laughs> and she loves kicking. And so that's, and that one, I at least have some competency in. So we'll see, we'll see which way she goes.
0: So what was it like traveling mid pandemic? I mean, literally across the world, the Australians take quarantine yeah. very seriously. Uh-huh. Very right.
1: seriously. And and credit to the the Australian tennis organization. They did a heck of a job and they were, you know, chartering flights for all the players and families and teams. And so, um, yeah, we had a long flight from LA um, and then settled into 14 days of quarantine in Adelaide with a bunch of the other players and, and our teams and stuff. And so, yeah, we were, you know, had a three-year-old in a, in a hotel room for a couple of weeks, um, but Olympia was great. And and frankly, I don't know, I don't mind I don't mind quarantine that much because as long as I have an internet connection to my computer, it's basically it's basically my life anyway. <laughs> um, but she uh, she was a trooper, and and the other payoff, kudos to the Australians because the payoff was you know you you come out you breathe you breathe air walking around outside, no one's got to wear a mask, and everyone is you know healthy and and safe. And that first night, I I remember I went to a, a Greek restaurant and. It just like I said, everyone's just buzzing, and and I'm. It makes me optimistic for once we you know finally wipe this thing out. Um, the next few years should be uh, really, really. I think roaring as as folks are already comparing it to the roaring twenties, or potentially comparing it to the the roaring twenties of the nineteen twenties. Um, I, I absolutely am seeing it, and uh, and it was just nice for the first time to be in a stadium um, full of people watching a sport and it was pat it was an exhibition in adelaide and uh yeah it just felt it felt so wonderful to be back uh and and i i know and i i can't wait to i wish i could have bottled up that feeling and given it to everyone because it's uh it, it there there is light at the end of the tunnel and we're we're close uh and i just can't wait for it
0: yeah well, they, they take it very seriously there. I mean, yes. for you, I've read where you said you would rather be known as Olympia's dad and Serena Williams' husband versus the founder of Reddit. That's right. Um, and you've been an advocate for families. And, and that's important for us, particularly on this podcast. Um, I want to ask you, though, when it comes to the companies you decide to invest in, do mm-hmm. you require them to have specific standards of paid leave, for example?
1: You know, okay, so we, it, not yet. We actually have something that we're we're working on. And the new fund is only a, a really only a few months old, um, but we're working on a document that would be a version of this, a kind of covenant, where where we would, you know, upon investing, say, look, this is a thing that we're asking you to sign to. Um, now, the the companies we invest in tend to be very very early stage. So, like, there's two founders, and so. In reality, there isn't really a need for any paid policy because there's no employees and it's just the two founders. And and frankly, the company may not even be around in another year. But one of the things we expect, certainly once a company has raised a Series A, um, which is around the time when they've now they've got product market fit. They're in a growth stage. They're able to raise usually a few million dollars and they have real money in the bank. Um, is when we actually sit down with them and start working on this. One of the ways we knew we could support our companies from day one was actually, so 1% of every dollar that we invest in a company, we set aside for them to use for any family care needs. And I think we're still the only venture fund that does this. I hope hope one day we'll be uh, one of many. Um, We set aside the 1% of our investment as dollars that are coming from us uh, as well as from our investors who have committed to this as well. Um, and, and that 1% of dollars can be used for any family care needs. We know that that investment is worth it because you know family is is so fundamental to so much of what we do. And, and a, we can't expect a founder to do their best work if they're struggling with those things. And if mm-hmm. we take care of them in their earliest days, our bet is they're also going to be way more inclined to take care of their employees as their company starts growing.
0: That's a huge... Point, decision to make in the beginning, in the inception, because one of the things we hear, I've heard it from lawmakers, I've heard it from female lawmakers that, you know, the constituents they represent who are small business owners can't afford to do these things. They just can't afford what a big corporation could Mm -hmm. for their own employees. And then it becomes, well, then kick it to the federal government. And then we continue talking about it, but it doesn't actually get legislated broadly. I mean, do you think that? it has to come down to the private sector or would you object to a federal mandate? You know, like would a federal mandate really hurt some of the innovation that you're talking about because these startups can't afford it on day one.
1: I would. So I was, I was campaigning for and really happy to see that we got 12 weeks of paid family leave for federal workers. Yes. That was big. President Trump signed that and that was huge. I really would love to see this be something that, is an option for any American, not just you know federal employees. Um, I do think the private sector is going to have to keep pushing this forward and showing. Certainly, you know all the companies that can afford it mm-hmm. should be feeling the social pressure at this point to be offering it, and that's not just to moms but also to dads, and not just for you know childbirth but also for adoption. Um, and I think we're going to get there pretty quickly over the next few years because you know top talent has so much leverage in this market and all of the most valuable employees are, you know, they're now pretty well exposed to paid family leave policies. So that I think it's going to be very hard to get top talent at a large firm unless you offer the same. So I think we win the day there. And then yeah, from the from the smaller businesses, you know, a firm like ours can do things like this in order to provide opportunities for early stage companies that can't afford it. Um, And, and my hope is, is that there is some solution that comes from, you know, a federal policy, um, that actually makes it accessible for all so that the burden is not on the small business owner, but, but actually it comes as a government benefit. And, and I think one of the reasons why you're seeing millennials be so slow with, with having children, Um, comes back to this, just the financials of it, having the economic security to feel like it's time to have a kid. Like that's real. And and I try to, you know, I think about this even within my own firms where like I'm pushing even the men to take full advantage of their paid family leave policies because I want to see them supporting their partners in a way that makes sense for their families so that they can do the best work they can do. When they're at the office i, I think gone especially now post covid gone are the days that we used to think there was like home life and work life like you bring your home problems to work you bring your work problems to home and the idea that men were immune from this uh was a farce right i know that i know that it matters just as much um to them and so that's why i've been such an advocate for the paternity leave side um because it's, it's just, it's fundamental. I know I'm not doing my best work unless I know the the home front is in a good place. And, and I've seen it time and time again now with employees, both, both men and women.
0: And lastly, Mm -hmm. um, you wore a t-shirt the other day that got a lot of attention. It said greatest athlete (laughs) with the word female crossed out. I loved it. (laughs) Why'd you wear it? Do you think the gender qualifier, um, diminishes achievement? Yeah,
1: I think, I mean, why I wore it was, uh, nike sends me merch and sometimes (laughs) i like it and i wear it and and you know i i've never been a stranger to courting controversy and uh look i think i think when we're we, we one of the things i love about sport is the fact that we can as 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 much of a level playing field as it is sports fans we still get to have these endless debates and discussions about all of this stuff which is wonderful i do think the qualifier is is a problem simply because if we're really talking about greatness um it's a pretty insulting thing to qualify it with with gender to say you know we're it, it would be i mean if 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 we're okay with that then we have to if the next time someone mentions like oh elon musk is the greatest entrepreneur of our generation they need to say elon musk is the greatest male entrepreneur of our generation and why does that feel uncomfortable because i guess as a society we've decided that it's okay to just generalize and and so then why should sport be any different um if we want to if we want to talk about greatness we should consider it across the board and uh you know i i like i guess on some level i really i really have a front row seat to what it has taken serena for at least you know the last five years to do what she does and do it so well and uh and it just feels it feels like an insulting qualifier because at the end of the day we're talking about humans being great at, at sport. And I really, I want, I want my daughter to live in a world. I want everyone's daughters to live in a world where we don't put an asterisk on it, or we don't find some way to say, well, okay, okay, but this is different because blank, uh, and, and I, I want to live in a world where, where, you know, little boys have posters of Alex Morgan Uh, on their wall and think she's great and have a poster of her right next to a poster of Messi. And, you know, what Serena and Venus have done for sport at a time admittedly before I was watching tennis, um, (laughs) you know, put them on the walls right alongside male counterparts and, and, you know, in many ways exceeded. Um, And I think that's, it's a, it, it in many ways is still one of these last frontiers where, sports still for all of its advantages for all of the progress that it's made still has these hang ups and uh yeah i like wearing t-shirts that upset people on twitter and excite people on twitter and <laughs> let's keep the conversation going on it because uh yeah I, I i don't want to see that qualifier
0: well amen and um we appreciate it uh, so much more we could talk to you about alexis but i know you gotta run thank you gotta you for have your me time. back
1: on sometime margaret anytime
0: Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. A quick look at an important but underreported story. Around the country, Asian Americans are reporting a spike in hate crimes. But in some states, it is still hard to prosecute their attackers. A handful of states, including Wyoming, Arkansas, Indiana, and South Carolina, still don't have anti-bias laws on the books, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Now, at the federal level, there is new pressure to close these legal loopholes. Right now, the ability to fight hate crimes is very uneven across the different jurisdictions. California Congresswoman Judy Chu, a Democrat who chairs the Asian Pacific American Caucus, is advocating for a new law that would allow the Department of Justice to give grants to states and local governments to improve the way hate crimes are tracked and reported. The recent brutal, deadly assault on an 84-year-old Thai American man in San Francisco has brought renewed attention to the ongoing issue. Never in my dream would I think this would happen to him or that he died here. Vicha Ratanapatki's daughter believes it was a hate crime. He was violently shoved in broad daylight and later died. A 19-year-old has since been charged with murder. Stop AAPI Hate, an advocacy group that tracks these cases, says more than 3,000 incidents have been reported since the pandemic began in March last year. Last month, President Biden issued an executive order calling for the federal government to begin collecting data about incidents directed at Asian-Americans and Pacific Islanders. It's a step that could make a difference for the Asian-American community and potentially for all communities of color. Thank you for listening to Facing Forward. New episodes are available every Friday. Join us each week as we make sense of our changing world together. I'm Margaret Brennan. You can also find me on your CBS network broadcast station Sunday mornings on Face the Nation or on our digital network CBSN at 1030 a.m., 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. Sundays. Facing Forward is produced by Face the Nations and Shu, Richard Escobedo, and Kelsey Miklas. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platforms and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.